You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In Vincent's reality, images evoked emotions. Born into a family and an era awash in sentimentality, Vincent looked to images not just to be instructed and inspired, but most of all, to be moved. Art should be personal and intimate, he said, and concern itself with, quote, what touches us as human beings. He shared the Victorian love not only for scenes of melodramatic emotion, deathbed vigils, tearful farewells, joyful reunions, but also for the sweet ubiquitous vignettes of little girls with baskets, grandparents with children, flirting young lovers, families at prayer, flowers and kittens, nosegays of imagery so popular that they spawned an entire new industry, greeting cards. He hailed sentiment as a sine qua non of all great art and set for his own art the highest goal to make drawings that touch some people. In Vincent's reality, even landscapes had to speak to the heart. The secret of beautiful landscape, he wrote, lies mainly in truth and sincere sentiment. He praised the Barbizon painters for their heartbreaking intimacy with nature. But nature had always been a wellspring of both imagery and emotion for Vincent, from the consolations of Creek Bank and Heath to the conceits of Carr and Michelet. The landscape images that he began collecting from an early age reflected both the romantics awe before sublime nature and the Victorian code of, of nature sentiments. Every season, every time of day, every meteorological condition was thought to have its own specific emotional effect. Pictures were called simply autumn effect, evening effect, sunrise effect, or snow effect. Each provided an emotional cue, like the caption on a print, as certain and comforting as a children's story, sunrise for hope, sunset for serenity, autumn for melancholy, twilight for longing. Stephen Nifey and Gregory Whitesmith graduated from the Harvard Law School in 1977. They're the Pulitzer Prize-winning authors of Jackson Pollock, an American saga. Their new book is Van Gogh, The Life. Thank you for joining me. Thank Stephen. you so much, Rick, for having us. Thank you. This is an amazing book. And it's more than an amazing book. It's practically an IPO in terms of the kind of effort you guys had to put into this. I'd like you to talk, uh, tell us a little bit about your history. Did you meet back in Harvard Law School? We did. We met the first day of the first year of Harvard Law School. And uh, we knew immediately we had, we had three things in common. We loved books, especially biographies. We loved the arts. Steve was and is a painter, and he brought a wealth of knowledge about art history from his training at Princeton. And I loved music. And we both knew that we didn't want to be lawyers. That's a great story. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we actually started writing books in law school, uh, first basically to pay the, rent, pay the tuition and the rent. And so we basically wrote what people would pay us to uh, write. But we, we decided once we graduated that we really wanted to do something ambitious and, uh, serious. and serious. And Paula came around, and that was 10 years of our life. 
and it took us about 10 years to recover from that effort. And when we did, we spent another 10 years on Van Gogh's. So that accounts for 30 years of, of, of half of our life. You know, one of the things that's so remarkable about this book is the, the sheer, uh, given the sheer scope, the sheer complexity, the, the vast number of different sources that you brought together, when we sit down to read it, it sits down to read like a single novel by a single person. And when I was writing about it and taking notes, I had to like stop myself from thinking about asking about the novel because that's how it feels to, like to read. So uh, I'd like you to talk just a little bit about your concept of creating biographies highly sourced from with a vast array of technological data yeah. that read like a, a great novel. Well, let, let's start with, an, uh, we basically divide the task between us, which is one reason why it has a single authorial voice. Um, I basically am in charge of the research, and it was, uh, it was far, far more daunting than Pollock. Um, there was so much more to it, but Greg, uh, writes the book I'm and, the he, well, that, that denigrates the, the role. I mean, he, wa he wants this to read and it's really, uh, I mean, m many great biographers try to make their books read like a novel, but I think Greg's literary gifts are such that a lot of people have said very, in a very gratifying way that this book reads like a great big thick uh, 19th century novel. And we never want the scholarship to get in the way of the emotional urgency that a good novel has. And in a way, by being able to put all the sources, the 28,000 footnotes, the 6,000 pages of textual notes online, um, you know, the scholars who want to find out where we got a specific fact, it's all there. But Greg didn't have to either argue the scholarship or present the sourcing anywhere in the book. Um, all that could be relegated to the internet and that left him free to try to structure this uh, with, with the sort of overall arcs and the internal arcs and the, the emotional uh, shape of, of, of a novel and then to write the sentences and the paragraphs with the kind of rhythm and, and the, the music basically that a, that a good novel has along as, as it tells its story. One of the things that I, I really love about this book is you talk about uh, a 19th century novel. It's so interesting because uh, Van Gogh was a fan of Dickens. His yes. novel is like a Dickens novel. Yes. <laughs> the story is like a Dickens no, novel. We thought it was appropriate to Vincent, of all people who read novels every day of his life practically, uh, to present that life in a novelistic way. I mean, he would have wanted his, his story told in, 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 with the drama. Of, of, of Dickens or Zola or one of the great writers that he admired so much. The challenge, there's a challenge though, and that is that unlike a novel, you start off with a set of material that is dated, that's specific. And in Vincent's case, you have all these letters, so you know precisely when various things happened. So you have very little liberty of when you introduce a character and, and when they get sick or when they, they move out or when there's a dispute. All that's a given, all that's given to you. And you have to observe what you know to be fact. That's sort of the first, since it's a nonfiction book, you have to have respect for exactly when, when things happened and in what order they happened. So the trick, if you can call it that, is to, is to see the arc in the actual facts. And I'm a great believer that uh, you know, we live our lives in our arcs. Things are important to us and they become less important to us and other arcs take over because something else has happened and so that arc supersedes the previous arc and 
and takes your life in a different direction. And that you really just, it's more a question of, or a challenge of observation uh, than it is one of, uh, of creation to, to write a good biography. Yeah, because the, 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 uh, the, it's, it's the, the, um, the more straightforward way to approach this issue of chronology is simply to put the facts in the right chronological order. And there are some biographers who write very, very readable books where they literally have almost no transition from one issue in a person's life to another and they just put them in basically in chronological order and if a person's life is important enough to you, you stay involved. But uh, Greg felt this overarching need to give the whole thing a shape and that meant having, he talks about observing, it meant studying these, the, the facts of the life for days and hours and months to, to, see, to, see, to see those arcs so that the whole thing has, has the urgency of, of fiction. Even, even though it respects the, with complexity the, com the complexity of life and the demands of nonfiction, which are that you can't change anything around. It, things have to happen in the same or in the right order. Uh, things have to happen um, as they happened. Now, I'd like you to wind back to say about 12 years ago. You're thinking about approaching this project. How much planning do you do? I mean, it seems that literally you could have put out an IPO and set up a company. You were employing a fairly large number of employees who must have been fairly highly paid. This, this is not a good way to make a living. Let me just put, <laughs> let me put it that way. This, this, uh, even, even though because we have a track record, we got paid a pretty big advance, uh, you can't hire 18 translators and five software engineers and seven researchers and um, it's, it's, this is not a, a, a big motion picture. Yeah, yeah, this is still a, it's still a book. Um, also, but we, as with Pollock, or you'd think we would have learned from Pollock just how big a project is, but I think it was sort of a, a misleading because we sort of assumed it would be about the amount of trouble and time and, and challenge that Pollock was. It was infinitely more yeah. uh, for a variety of reasons. One, because uh, Van Gogh has attracted so much good scholarship. Um, there are dozens and dozens of really good scholars who have devoted their entire lives for a century to Vincent van Gogh. So in addition to his letters and all the family letters and all the primary sources, there are, there is this, there are over 600 books in English alone on, specifically on van Gogh. Plus, of course, all the books in the other languages and the books about the movement. And then there's the secondary literature, you know, what, uh, what Dutch uh, books on Dutch reading habits in the 19th century books on prostitution in the Netherlands in the 19th century, a topic of particular concern to Vincent van Gogh. And then, because he was such a voracious reader, this vast literature in four languages, German, French, Dutch, and English, uh, uh, fiction, nonfiction, and poetry that he consumed and in many cases memorized. So um, we, we really did have to assemble an army to help us, partly because we don't speak Dutch. That was the really extraordinary thing when we were sort of contemplating Van Gogh, he met all of the first line of criteria for a great subject for a biography. He, he had, the, the art is unbelievably important. His life is really, really interesting. Uh, the, the sources are there to be able to reconstruct the life. And to our astonishment, no one had done it. Uh, even though there are 600 books on Van Gogh, no one had yet, in English alone, no one yet had tried the big ambitious biography. But the, the hurdle that remained is that almost all the primary sources, except for his own letters, and many of the secondary sources were in Dutch, and we don't speak Dutch. Now, one of the things that I loved about this book 
was that um, I w the way it reads for me, and I think the way it reads for a lot of people, is we have familiarity with the images of Van Gogh. Right. And they're powerful cultural images. And nice. the, the power in the art is so serious and so strong, you can't resist it. But we, and we know little snippets of his life. We know right. some of this, and we know some of that. Mm -hmm. and we know a little bit here. But reading the book, what's so great is that it's like a mystery to us. We know the end, we know what yeah, happened, right, right. and now we get to see. It's not a, so much a whodunit, we know whodunit. Yeah, yeah. Although actually now we don't, and then we'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's, it's but like a why. Why did, he, yeah. why did he become this man? How did he become this yeah. man? I think yes, we, exactly. we talked about this so yeah. often that one of the reasons um, we thought that people would sit still for 900 pages wasn't just that it's Vincent Van Gogh and he's this unique cultural figure, but as you precisely put it, everybody knows how this ends up, and therefore they know enough details around the life, but they really don't know how you get from being an unsuccessful, miserable, unhappy, technically uh, unskilled, self-mutilating self person to one of the greatest artists of all time. And that was what uh, uh, um, sort of we, we felt that people would sit still for that reason. And what's been amazing to us is that we've had people in the Van Gogh Museum tell us, this is people who spent their lives studying Van Gogh, for one, one case 40 years, and a brilliant scholar, say that she couldn't wait to turn the page to find out what happened next. And we've had members of the Van Gogh family tell us They've been so excited to see how it actually evolved. Yeah. It, one, that was, it's such a, a beautifully written book. Uh, Greg, tell us about your challenge in terms of Stevens, he's assembling the, he's assembling the, the uh, data superstructure. Research, right. Right. He's, right. He's, right. He's, right. he's, he's setting up the, soft, yeah. the software. What, how are you? Um, taking all this in and architecting, because I've got to guess on your side, you've got a fair number amount of superstructure yourself in terms of working out the timelines and these arcs. Right. Yeah, I, it, was, uh, it was like having uh, a room full of Lego blocks and, uh, and you know, trying to figure out how they all fit together and how you're going to present them. Uh, it was by far the biggest organizational challenge I've ever faced. And, uh, uh, but I, I think what I, what I felt strongly from the beginning is people are not going to sit still for 900 pages on Vincent Van Gogh unless they're emotionally captivated. They've got to be emotionally invested in this guy. And if they are, if you, can, if you can get them emotionally invested, they'll sit still for anything. You know, they'll want to read about his, his career as a preacher. They'll want to read about the details of his uh, self-mortification and why he was this way and that sort of thing. And that so if you could keep it emotionally compelling, that the details would be, uh, would be fairly easy to fit in and would fit naturally. And I think, I hope that's what Why don't you does. describe the, the, te the technology that made it possible for you to do oh, that yeah. in 10 years and not in 20 or 30 or 40? Technical. Well, there was a huge challenge to trying to manipulate and organize uh, this vast amount of information that we collected from Vince's thousands of letters, the thousands of books that had been written about him and the thousands of books he read. So we, we really had to go digitally. So we, we had written this software that allowed us to create digital note cards 
to put uh, pieces. We digitalized the whole library, first of all. Then we created note cards that had uh, some source material, and then we could add notes to them. And then we could organize those cards digitally by just dragging them into parts of the outline. And move that. then we could move around parts of the outline so that if we, or, or add to it if we needed to, to break something down more. It's a, it was basically a traditional way of organizing, only we could do it all digitally. And thank God we did it, because if we hadn't had that, we would still be working on this book. It would have taken 30 years instead of 10. We had 100,000 100, note cards. And uh, so... Really? 100,000. 100, and they were not short, because you, can, because this, the, you made the cards digitally, you weren't constrained by time to you know, do it by hand or even to type over the passage from the source that was of interest to you. It was, it was altogether too easy just to copy yeah. and paste a whole page. Highlight and then move it over to the car. Or two pages. Occasionally, Greg would send me uh, emails. How on earth could you leave me with a three-page well, note? You would take a book by Zola and leave me, uh, you know, like a chapter from it in one card. And so I would read through, I have to read through the whole chapter of Zola. I mean, it was good in some ways because it, it brought me closer to the research than I would probably if he had just snipped out one or two lines and uh, said these might be relevant. I might uh, I, that I wouldn't have found the, the, another line that was relevant to, uh, two pages later. So it was it was not the most efficient way to work. But it was an incredibly uh, compact way to work, given the amount of material we had. I'd like you to talk about architecting this whole data, data. network research center. You guys had access to uh, some letters that had not ever been seen before. Yes, one, one of the most exciting things was, was that even though Vincent's letters have been read many, many times, I mean, they're in multiple editions, and uh, they're beautifully translated by his sister-in-law, Joanna Bonger, uh, then they've been recently retranslated by a, an army of scholars in, in the Netherlands uh, uh, for precision. Um, but the family letters were out there. So, uh, and because Vincent was the problem child, it wasn't because he was the successful child, he was the problem child, so the family letters are full of him. Not because, oh my gosh, Vincent has a new exhibition and have you seen his great new painting? It's all, should we have him committed? I yeah, finally yeah, think yeah. he's crazy, and, uh, but he'll throw up a, a firestorm of protest if we try this. But you know, where, and where would we take him? Uh, there's a really uh, benign institution in southern Belgium that might work. Um, so you see the life unfold, both from his perspective, his rage at his parents, for wanting to have him committed, yeah. and uh, and then the parents, sort of both humiliation and anger, but also their sympathy and their concern, and all of their complex reactions, you could see both sides of this dialogue within the family. So and it made a great counterbalance to the letters, Vincent's letters. We we all know Vincent's letters. People have read Vincent's letters, and that gives you a, a 360 degree view from inside his head. But it's interesting to compare that to what other people were seeing of him, and sometimes they don't match up at all. But the, the, other, the other thing that Greg did, while I was busy reading these, this huge list of books he read, to, and I had to read it, it was really painful because I couldn't just read them for enjoyment, and many of these are things that are not part of the American curriculum, like Zola really isn't even part of it, let alone the German romantic poets and, and pe people I've just never read. Um, but I had to read them quickly. I was reading three books a day, so you couldn't sort of savor the prose. <laughs> you had to read them 
to, from Vincent's biographical perspective, what about this book? And there were certain topics, religion, sex, uh, art, um, meaning of life. Those are the kinds of things that he would have picked out in those books as being mean, meaningful to him. So I had to read them basically uh, while I was reading these, um, uh, this vast secondary literature, which was interesting, you know, what life was like in the 19th century in Holland, England, and, uh, um, and France. Uh, France and uh, the huge literature on Vincent van Gogh and on his art and his life, um, and these, um, this even huger, uh, larger literature of, that he himself read in all these languages, many books that I had never read uh, before. It was, it was really almost painful to have to read them as quickly as I had to, because I couldn't savor the, the, the glories of Zola or the German Romantic poets. I had to read them from the perspective of what was interesting to Vincent. And he was interested in religion, he was interested in art, he was really interested in sex, he was interested in the meaning of life. And I had to sort of quickly, three books a day, get through all that. But meanwhile... Yeah, Steve and I are sort of yin and yang in this way. Uh, Steve is an incredibly fast, voracious reader. I'm actually a quite a slow reader. And uh, I, I like to th characterize myself as a close reader. But it's, you know, it's basically just slow. And uh, so I was the one delegated to read Vincent's letters. And that's, uh, there are about a thousand, just a little less than a thousand letters he wrote. <clears throat> Many of them are quite long. But they are the core of Van Gogh's studies and have been for a long time. But one of the things we think we do differently, have done differently, and one of the reasons our book is different than previous books on Van Gogh, is we take those letters not as a diary entry, you know, not as a journal that he kept for himself, but as what we think they are, which is a correspondence with a, a brother with whom he had a very complicated relationship. Because they're almost all letters he wrote to Theo, and he was completely dependent on Theo for his support. He was, Theo was pretty much his only friend during almost all of his life. Uh, so the letters are incredibly complicated by this overlay of fraternal, complicated fraternal relations. Uh, on the one hand, uh, uh, Theo loved Vincent and felt very dutiful toward him. They had obviously, he had obviously been looked up to him as a younger brother when the two of them were young. Uh, but now, uh, Vincent had failed at the family business. Theo had succeeded. Theo was making money and a salary, and he had the respect of his, his rich uncles and his family, and he was the more beloved of the two. In a place where Vincent had recently failed miserably. And Vincent had failed miserably in that precise job, basically. He was in line to, be, to inherit the big family business in art dealing, and, uh, and also had embarrassed the family. He had, uh, he had lived with a prostitute in The Hague, and, and so he was, he was the sort of shame, and he was, the, like he himself said, the black sheep of the family. So here he was uh, constantly writing his brother either to justify what he was doing. Uh, oh, Theo, I really should be doing drawing, not painting. Uh, or to, to protect Theo from the truth of what was happening in his life. So he would write Theo and say, oh, I've got lots of friends, and I, you know, I'm really happy here, when he had no friends and he was miserable. Uh, he would hide important aspects of his life. He hid the fact of this prostitute for a long time. In fact, he was living with a prostitute and her family and paying for them with Theo's money. 
Uh, he hid the fact he had syphilis from Theo. Um, he hid his own mental illness from Theo for a long time. So these letters that people often cite as being these sort of ultimate artistic expressions uh, are sometimes that. I mean, he was capable of incredible Shakespearean flights of insight and, uh, and beautiful words. And uh, he was really, he was a first-rate poetic mind. And he had sort of immersed himself in the great art, uh, writers and poets of the era. But it was also an incredibly fraught correspondence with these, all these family issues. He would threaten Theo that if you don't send me more money, then who knows what could happen. I could end up on the streets, and I could really be an embarrassment to the family. Uh, so there was all that going on. So the letters had to be really pulled apart strand by strand to see what they were actually saying, often what they didn't say. You know, the dog that didn't bark. Though there are lots of places where he never he doesn't talk about things, and you know they're happening in his life, so you you have to think he's not talking to Theo about them because he's trying to hide them, obviously. So it was they're they're very very rich, but in ways that they have not been previously recognized as being rich, uh, as insights into Vincent's life and into his mind at the time. They're not just greeting card, uh, you know, really really nice. Uh, poetic green card lines. Well, that's one of the things I think the real triumphs of this book is you create uh, Vincent as a very three-dimensional character. We see him from his perspective, and you use a word a lot, that Vincent conducted a lot of campaigns. Yes. And this yeah. is, I think, a really interesting vision of him trying to put one over. He's manipulative. He's yeah. wheedling. His parents are somewhat upset. You can understand. A lot of his problems were economic, and that's, I think, one of the great things I love is that we get to know Vincent in a way we never, ever knew him. And right. who thought that, it, that at base, a lot of his problems were that he just didn't know how to handle money. Right. Yeah. right. He didn't know how to handle money, and he felt constantly defensive about the choices he had made. Mm. Uh, and the failures, he felt a failure, a terrible failure. Not only was he a failure at his family's business, then he was a failure as a pastor and a failure as a missionary. All these various careers he tried and failed at. So at each one, he sort of slid further and further down the ladder of the family's estimation until the, uh, they eventually thought, this guy's hopeless. He's always been crazy. He, it's a source of a problem for him and for us. It always has been. And he felt that. He felt that constant diminution in his standing in the family and was constantly trying to compensate for it by giving them new stories, new grandiose plans for I'll paint 100 paintings and they'll, make, they'll earn 5,000 francs a piece and add that all up and, and Theo, I'll be able to pay you back for everything you've ever lent me. And, uh, and they become sort of the fantastical, what he called castles in the air that he constructed out of his imagination for rec reconciliation and redemption within his family. And so the letters tell that story in addition to the things that he's actually saying, they tell a much broader and more interesting story about his constant and really pathetic, uh, sympathetic attempt to get back in his family's good graces. Yeah, the, that he never we, did. Uh, the, the reception of the book has been everything we could have hoped for. I mean, 500 articles in the press and lots of, of broadcast uh, interviews and. Uh, and, and I, I, we haven't seen a single completely negative review yet. But there have been one or two people who have, wonder, uh, who have suggested that we really didn't like him. 
which is far from the truth. It's possible to, excuse me, to recognize his flaws as a human being, which are significant, um, and, the, and also be aware that he was too annoying a person for a whole variety of reasons, most of them flowing from the mental illness that he had, to have wanted to go off on a cruise with this guy, or even spend an afternoon with him, without, uh, and yet at the same time, feel an enormous amount of respect, not only for the glory of his art, but also for the, as, as Greg put it, this poetic uh, uh, imagination, this, this almost Shakespearean, occasionally, uh, Shakespearean view of existence. I mean, it was, it was one of the great imaginations of all time. And, and it's, uh, even when he's most annoying or most demanding of Theo, you're constantly aware this, is, this person is so unhappy this person is experiencing a level of loneliness, alienation, and misery that most of us can't even comprehend. Yeah. It, it, it's a loneliness that's almost physically painful. And there are so many acts of generosity in between all of the campaigns and the agendas and the demands. I mean, the, the fact, a good example is him living with this prostitute and her family in The Hague. He treats them, he treats her like a wife, even though he, the family wouldn't let him marry her. He supported her mother. He supported her mother. He's, he takes care, when she, when she gives birth to a child, which isn't his, I mean, it's mathematically possible, but very unlikely this child is his, but he's, he's a terrific father for this child. He goes to this dreadful hospital for the poor. You can imagine what a hellish place this was, where the baby was born. And he thinks, he's so excited by the birth of this child that he paints it delusionally as this ecstatic experience and he takes this child and the, and the prostitute mother back to their house and and feeds it and, and, and takes care of it as if it were his own child and loves, loves this boy as if it were his own child even though he's paying the mother by the day for being with him. So how can you not feel an enormous amount of sympathy for this person who was basically had many generous and good instincts, but who was in such terrible circumstances that none of it is Ozzy and Harriet. There's nothing uh, simple about any of it, but you know, we don't, we don't necessarily choose the people we admire or even befriend because they're simple and, and uh, you know, sometimes we admire people because they're complex and because their motivations are complex and because their thinking is complex. And our feeling about Van Gogh is that he isn't likable, but he's enormously admirable. And sympathetic. And sympathetic. And brilliant, And too. brilliant. And, of course, a brilliant genius of an artist, that too. That's one of the but things I think. a sympathetic person. I yeah, think, I think people will be surprised. That even people who know the paintings mm -hmm. and know that the paintings had to be the product of great genius will be surprised that he, that he was so verbal and that he was verbally so brilliant as well, that he had thoughts about existence. Um, and he could articulate them in, in, if not at the level of Shakespeare, then at the level of George Eliot or somebody else pretty darn high on the, on the trajectory of human um, um, self-expression. Self he was, he was uh, what's so amazing to me too is that one of the things you, you talk about is that he lived his life in images. Yes. I love mm -hmm. this idea that of him having a vision of his, he had to be in his old day-to-day -day life, but because that was so difficult for him, he constructed another life that was yeah. of all of images, and he had a mind where he could remember images. Yes, yeah, so we, we, we forget that at the time, uh, they, you know, there was, of course there was no internet, he also didn't have art libraries, and he was often in small places 
where there were no art museums. He could summon from his failed career in the art business thousands of images or from his visits to art museums the, the, the most nuanced passages in paintings or tones or colors and use them in his own work. And, uh, but I, th I think one of the things that, that's, that's so important in understanding him is the fact that he had to sort of reimagine the world every day to be acceptable because the real world was so difficult. It created a mind that could imagine a new painting that we all these, a century later, think of as a masterpiece almost sometimes one a day. It was the practice of reimagining the world to be suitable to his own existence that made it possible for him to create one world-shaking masterpiece after another, sometimes one every single day. You know, as I was reading this book, I was thinking about a, a 20th century man, some of the parallel, Philip K. Dick, who had, who produced, who lived in economic uncertainty. He was, he, the reason he was writing like five or six novels, sometimes 10 novels a year just to make ends meet. There's something about people who are forced by their economic circumstances and just by their own intensity to create art mm -hmm. at a really fast rate that mm -hmm. makes that art seem really uh, gripping to us now. Yeah, I think I, in, in Vincent's case, he, there really was a desperation to his uh, <clears throat> to the creation of his art. You know, he only he was only an artist for ten years out of his thirty-seven years, and of that ten years, almost all the great masterpieces were done in the last two years of his life. So all those all those hundreds of paintings that we all know and, and love and are filled with Van Gogh Museum are part of a very very short burst of uh, of creative activity, and I do think a lot of it is that the effort, he was so used to putting in fantastic 24-7 effort into keeping the reality at bay and, uh, and sort of negating the, the, the incredibly crushing negativity that was all around him. You're a failure, you're never going to make anything of yourself, you're an embarrassment to your family, you're crazy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That, that he had to work extra hard. He had to just, he was like on a treadmill running as fast as he could to, to maintain these fictions that he created in his own head. That this prostitute he lived with wasn't really a prostitute, she was a, she was a Mater Dolorosa. She was a poor, beleaguered figure, a victim of society, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that was just one of many, many of these examples of, of his using the power, incredible power of his imagination to sort of overrule the world and overrule the reality that surrounded him and increasingly crushed him. And so that power, that ability to do that on a constant basis, one was incredibly physically draining, and two, it gave his art the incredible intensity it had. So when he looked at, uh, uh, late in life, he looked at a wheat field with clouds over it, he saw, you know, he saw them so intensely in order to keep out what was really there which was uh, in the attendance from his, the asylum on either side of him and, uh, and a kind of a hopeless situation all around him, he wanted to create the most buoyant painting he could think of, the most cheerful. So he, he, he marshaled his color, he marshaled his brush, he marshaled his impasto, all in an effort to sort of say, no, you're all wrong, no, that isn't there, this is what's here, this is what I see, this is what is important, this is what life is about, 
It's right here on canvas, and I'll cling to this, and the rest of it um, I, I, I will, I'll push aside by the vigor and the energy and the, uh, and the intensity with which I paint this reality that is the reality as I want to see it. But a lot of people ask, why is he perhaps the most beloved artist any, everywhere in the world for, for everyone from toddlers to old people like us? And um, we think that among the many reasons is this intensity of yeah. these images. The authenticity and the intensity of these images creates a kind of visceral emotional connection between those images and both the you know, art historians who've lived in a museum their whole lives and people who've never walked into a museum before who are just seeing one of them in a poster in a, in a dorm room. I mean, there is a connection there that is really beyond that between, say, Rembrandt and the average person who sees a Rembrandt for the first time. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's not surprising that, uh, that someone who focused that much energy and intensity in creating this world would 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 uh, would establish an almost unique connection with the with the uh, with, yeah. with, with the audience. Uh, One of the things you say, and I think this is so interesting, is that he assaulted the canvas and mu canvas and much the way he painted, the way he had his relationships. He'd come at it and he'd retreat. Well, the, the, the one yeah. somebody who watched him paint said that most painters seduce the canvas. Vincent, he rapes it, yeah. <laughs> which, which is part of the, 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 the analogy of life as a battle. And uh, in the book, Greg has a, a, uh, quotes from a letter in which almost every sentiment comes uh, clothed in the, in the vocabulary of a military campaign. And there, it really is yeah. how he, he, it really was a battle. Every and, day and was a battle. he himself said that he painted the way he wrote letters. You were talking earlier about argumentative and uh, campaigns that he felt in his paintings. They were basically arguments for this way of seeing things or this kind of color. Uh, and he went on campaigns that consisted of multiple paintings, all of which were different sort of uh, fronts in the battle against uh, impressionist color, against a symbolist uh, um, airy nothings, you know, because he was always in battle against some other artist, some set of artists that he felt he was, he was the correction to what the impressionists were doing wrong because they had too much light and not enough construction in what they were doing and the neo-impressionists was too frothy and, and lacked emotion. Uh, and uh, um, so anyway, the, there was always, he was always, had picked a side and was fighting his side to the, to the extent of his energies, always. It was, he said he, he said he even read the newspaper in a fury. So he, you know, you can imagine what he was like as a painter, and that was just he was just out to prove that he was right and that the world was wrong. And that's one of the things I think that you guys make so clear, is how well informed he was. We look at his paintings and we just see that here's a man who maybe got lucky and managed to connect some part of his lizard brain with the canvas and short circuit everything else. And that's not the case. No, he was a brilliant art yeah, critic. Yeah. He assimilated all the art. He assimilated the literature. He knew that stuff yeah, so well yeah. that he could internalize yeah. it. This is what, this goes to the question that for so long the dogged his art, which is that it was because he was insane and he did have a, a mental affliction, that was it just the product of a, of a, of a, of a crazy man? And at the time, a lot of people thought that. And when he was alive, it was like, 
oh, this is just, you know, this is a guy, this is the, this crazy Dutchman down in an asylum in southern France. He's doing these weird paintings with these colors that are really kind of shocking. And, and uh, um, that was, that was a, a, a story that trailed him. But now we know that that's obviously not the case, that he was, he, there was a great deal of thought and care and uh, contemplation went into his work, even though he did work in a kind of a fury. I mean, he did work in a kind of a, 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 an elevated sense of, of purpose and mission. And, and so there was, it's highly rhetorical. The paintings are highly rhetorical. He wanted to get the brightest color he could. He wanted to get the, most, the sharpest contrasts between color he could so that the painting would, would, would grab you by the collar and shake you. Um, and, but that wasn't the same thing as saying that he was painting, as you were saying, his reptilian brain in some sort of crazy, uncontrolled way. I mean, he was very thoughtful in the way that he, he grabbed you by the collar and shook you. Well, also, uh, to, to, to sort of focus from, from the way he painted in general down to the specific work, I think one of the things that's so exciting, and that you, uh, well, first, it's, it's so exciting to get inside the head of anyone, mm -hmm. but to get inside this head is really exciting, and 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 to watch him construct a single painting. The idea that he would, uh, the, I, we have this image that he it's based on, on evidence that he would spend at the night before smoking his pipe in bed, which doesn't seem like the safest thing to do, but he would be sitting there imagining the painting he was going to paint the next day, what the composition was going to be like, what colors would be the predominant colors, wow. how the whole thing would work, mm -hmm. so that when he faced the canvas the next day, he had, he had a huge program. I mean, this is a, a mind that worked at computer speed, so there was a lot that had been figured out in his head the day before the, the painting began, but then every single time you put a color on the canvas or, or shaped a brushstroke in a certain way, it demanded a, a response to, this, the, to what he had just done. So the, uh, the, the, the act of painting, which was also furious, was a running uh, battle between this image that he had in his head of what he wanted the painting to look like plan. and the, the, the plan and the need to work, uh, to be inspired every single second to respond to the previous gesture with the next gesture in, in, in a work, uh, in a way that produced the perfect color combination or the perfect next brush stroke. So it was, it, uh, the, the, these are not um, accidental works. They are incredibly well planned and yet they are also uh, a, a, a concentrated um, explosion of disciplined inspiration, and, which is why they are you know, a hundred years later, still uh, considered among the greatest things ever painted. Timeless and infinitely powerful, as is your biography. And one of the things I think that is really great about it is the characters, the way we meet the characters, the way you structure the characters. And I'd like you to talk about doing the characters, creating the characters as, you know, you went, you make some interesting choices, you know, like uh, Zuckmeyer. Zuckstetter, the, there is a soldier that he painted, uh, that oh, he drew yeah. from all, every different <laughs> angle. And talk yeah. about just choosing the characters and creating them. Ziderlein. Ziderlein. Ziderlein, yeah. yeah. Um, well, the most important thing always was what did the character, Vincent's relationship with the character, say about Vincent? Mm -hmm. um, and Ziderlein was a great case where he was, at that point, he had entered art wanting to be an illustrator. 
<clears throat> the great master of color, whom we all have come to love, really only believed in black and white and for a long time argued his brother to paralysis over the fact that he should only be doing black and white work and not bothering with that frothy color that the Impressionists were doing. Um, <clears throat> but he, he was a great looker. He was an incredibly, we were talking about earlier, an incredibly intense looker. And he also desperately wanted to do figures. He wanted to paint people, he wanted to draw people. But he had a hard time because of his abrasive personality of getting people to model for him. Whereas Eidolon was a, uh, an old man at a local, uh, what was called an almshouse, which is, a, he was a veteran and uh, on the public dole, lived on the public dole in a public institution. And so Vincent went over there and basically recruited him. He tried to recruit a lot of people, preferably women, but all he got was this old grizzled war veteran. And, uh, and he came over to Vincent's studio and basically just stood while Vincent took his, his uh, charcoal and made drawings of Zeitland in every conceivable position, wearing every conceivable different kind of clothing, and, uh, and then had him turn and he'd do it again and then do it from the side and then do it from the other side and do it from the front and from the back. And was apparently, Zeitland was apparently infinitely patient with this crazy Dutchman. Uh, he also happened to be deaf, which would have helped in that situation because Vincent was always talked when he worked. And uh, he was just, just, uh, just he, he, he worked the way he talked and talked the way he worked. Um, and so it allowed Vincent to, to exercise his ability to look intensely at one object and, uh, and, and a figure at, over and above that, which is what he wanted to do. So when you look at those drawings of Zeitlein, he, uh, he gets every, uh, you, know the, you know the famous, picture of the boots, you know, he has the, the painting of the boots. Mm -hmm. And the boots are, are these, they're each, the, each one is like a life in itself. The, the, the way the, um, the laces are, are laying across each other, the amount of wear on the boot, all that is done because he, he just looked at them so intensely. He saw the whole, the, the hundreds of miles of, of journey that those boots had taken. The same way with Zeitelon, he saw this old man he saw the wars he'd been in, and so and he managed to get all that into his his big frock coat, and his worn face, and his big side whiskers, um, and see the whole life in the uh, in this in this in this model, and this is a talent. This is a talent, if you can call it that, or a, a gift that he used later in his self portraits. I mean, his portraits, where and in all of his work where he was able to see something and see it more intensely than you and I would see it and really just look and stare and stare and stare, whether it was a pollard tree or whether it was an old postman or whether it was um, a bowl of flowers, it looks just incredibly vivid. Mm -hmm. And in our search was for why is his art so loved? Why is this art considered so great? Why has it survived so long as at the top of of the heap of, uh, of artists that are loved and work that's loved. And we think this is part of the answer to that, is that he had an ability to look in really, really intensely at objects um, and see their essences and see their sort of what they have in common with all similar objects. 
and, uh, and, get, and his eye line was the first time he had a chance to do this with a figure because most figures wouldn't stand still for him. So that was why his eye line became important. The fact that he was deaf, the fact that he was old, the fact that he was patient, all became things that made it possible for Vincent to exercise his artistic vision on this old guy. Um, one, uh, yeah, the, the, one of the amazing things about Van Gogh is that he uh, connects with somebody who's never been in the museum before, but he also is, um, uh, inspires exhibition after exhibition and book after book by great scholars. And uh, um, so these paintings are not only beautiful, but they're also layered with associations and references to the art and literature that were so important to Vincent. And um, so uh, in addition to looking hard and presenting these incredibly intense pictures of the world that he saw, they, they, are, they are filled with references. And I think one of the, one of the benefits of getting to know his life, mm -hmm. in, in getting to book, know in yeah. the book, and getting to know his imagination, and to getting to know the art that he loved, and getting to know the books that he loved, is that you can look at a painting like Le Berceuse, the postman Roulin's wife, which was so important to him that he painted it five times. It isn't just incredibly beautiful with the green background and the bright uh, um, red, the, the color contrast, and, and uh, but the, you know, there are references in the wallpaper to great uh, Flemish tapestries. There are references in, in her stoic, sort of comforting figure to the novels of Pierre Loti and the, uh, and, and, and the ceramic figures in the Icelandic boats, the, the fishermen's boats that, that, uh, of the Virgin Mary that provided consolation to them during their rough voyages at sea. She becomes a kind of of uh, metaphor for, for that. There's also the relationships to his own life. Everything he saw, he would, he would see autobiographically. So there's this picture of a mother holding a rope. It's actually, it's, a, it's supposedly a portrait of motherhood, but the baby is not visible, the, um, and the rope is slack. So she's supposedly um, um, rocking the cradle, but there's no rocking going on. And it is a, a portrayal of this lack of connection to his own mother. So these paintings are not only unbelievably beautiful, um, um, but they are filled with all these incredibly rich res uh, resonances and associations that make them richer uh, uh, the more you know about them. It, it's interesting because in many ways the paintings are a lot like the book itself in that they are full of rich life, but all the uh, references are offline. Yeah, there are, are, yeah, yes. are, are, are. Yeah, you can You can look at that painting, the Berceus, and not know any of that, and it still knocks you over. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, I, th I think Vincent himself believed, and this is, we think, really exciting, we, we, uh, that, that, that knowing the artist made looking at the work of art more, uh, more, uh, more of an enriching experience. Mm -hmm. He read artist biographies constantly. His, uh, the Sancier's biography of Jean-Francois Millet was one of his favorite books. And he actually uh, says that he agrees with Zola that the man who stands behind the canvas is more important than the canvas itself. So um, uh, I, I think it will really enrich the experience of, we hope, a lot of people um, to know who Vincent van Gogh was intimately as they look at what, uh, at what he produced. Now, one of the things you guys do a great job of is giving us a vision of his mental state. And there are a couple things about that, is that um, you have, uh, there have been a, since his, his death, there have been probably thousands and thousands of people who have 
diagnose what was wrong with him because he clearly had a mental illness at, right. at, yeah. of some kind. And you guys have, have come up with temporal lobe epilepsy, which I think is so interesting because that's um, often uh, Hildegard von Bingen, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think, is also uh, thought to have had that. People who have... Colbert had it. Yeah. It's and I just heard that Caravaggio had it. Really? Yeah. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. So uh, it's... it's, it's uh, and we, I would, I would, I would uh, hasten to say that the Van Gogh Museum now believes that's what he had. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, that's what his own doctors thought he had. Oh, really? So, yeah. so uh, you're quite right, though. There have been an extraordinary number of diagnoses. And we think that is a reflection of the fact that, that uh, Vincent is so uniquely... Uh, um, a, a famous and this, uh, he's so uniquely a, a high culture superstar mm -hmm. that many psychiatrists have wanted him to have whatever mental affliction it, uh, it is that yeah. they particularly deal with. So there have been diagnoses of schizophrenia and Meniere's disease and a whole bunch of other things which are completely in, lacking in credibility. Um, but we believe his own doctors were absolutely right that he had epilepsy. Uh, there was a lot of epilepsy on both sides of his family, which is one of the things that confirmed the diagnosis for, uh, for them. And uh, it's a terrifying disease. I mean, there are different levels of it. Flaubert's obviously wasn't as severe as, uh, as Van Gogh's. And Flaubert writes about it beautifully. We quote some passages about what it's like to have temporal lobe epilepsy, because mm -hmm. one of the great writers of all time had it and describes how terrifying it is. Because you have these psychotic episodes in which you lose a sense of who you are. You don't go unconscious, but you sort of bl uh, blank out. You don't black out, you blank out. And after it's over, you don't remember what you did. Um, why don't you talk about how, how it functions? One with the universe. Yeah. Well, it, <clears throat> it's more of a I fall into an abyss and um, not sure if you'll ever come out. And, uh, and, and basically, when you do come out of a seizure, the, the past is just this big void in your life, and you have no idea what happened or where you were or what you might have done. He, uh, Vincent, cut off his ear during part of, <clears throat> excuse me, part of one of these seizures, during one of these seizures. So thereafter, that was in 1888, thereafter he was constantly afraid that he was going to have another seizure, worst of all in public, and he was afraid of what it was going to, you know, what would he do, what would mm -hmm. happen, and, and how would he be treated, where would he be taken. He was often uh, uh, raided, his house, uh, the yellow house in Arnold, was raided by the police, who, responding to complaints from neighbors that he was crazy, would take him, grab him, and take him, and he would wake up manacled in, the, uh, in an isolation cell in the local hospital. And so it was an incredibly precarious existence, and this, 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 this uh, affliction, temporal lobe epilepsy, really left him uh, completely unbalanced and, and, and uncertain about the next day. Or even, so you, could have, you could have multiple episodes in a day, or you could be two months between them. Mm -hmm. But it was at that very uncertainty that made it all the harder, because he couldn't, he couldn't go out for lunch and think, oh my God, maybe, you know, maybe I won't come back. Um, or maybe I'll might wake up in a, again in, a, in, a, in an insane asylum. So we think that a lot of the, that late art re reflects the, the new, even more intense uh, awareness he had that, that everything he was seeing and what he was painting, whether it was a, sub, well, whether it was a landscape or a still life or whatever, was 
was a phenomenon that he might not experience again. That so when he saw the best example is in 1890 he saw an old uh, almond tree with that had just burst into blossom in the spring, and he saw these beautiful pink blossoms against a blue sky, and it was so incredibly beautiful. Partly because it was incredibly beautiful and it would have stopped any one of us in our tracks, but for Vincent. It was like, oh my God, I've got to get that down. I may never see that again. I may never see that sight again. So I've got to get it down in some way that I can share this, this sense of beauty with, with other people. And the irony, the sad irony is, of course, he never did see it again because that was his last spring. He died you know, in July of that year. But one of the reasons that painting is so fam famous but also so winning and so convincing and so beautiful and so sublime is that he was able to bring all of that sense of the tentativeness and the precariousness of life that he felt to this image. You know, this, is, this level of beauty is something that we don't, we don't appreciate when we walk by it every day. We really need to stop and grasp it and understand it and appreciate it because it could go away at any moment. And, uh, and I think, again, that's one of the things that gives, especially those late works from, from Saint-Rémy, some of the work from Arl, uh, the Reaper in the Field or, the, or Starry Night, um, you know, that sense of, uh, of mortality uh, and therefore immortality that, uh, that they give us and why they are, have become such devotional images to, they really are sort of secular devotional images people have a feeling about Starry Night that is something that in the old days they would have had toward a, uh, a particular triptych of the Virgin Mary and the, and the miracle of, of, uh, of that birth. And uh, what he did is he brought that sense of miraculous life to these everyday images. You know, we talked earlier this, about a pair of shoes, but, uh, but a Starry Night is a better example and Almond Branch is a better example. Of, of these, these everyday miracles that we just need to look at more closely in order to fully recognize and, and, their and value. People connect with these images in that devotional way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 500,000 people a year visit his grave. You know, what other painter or artist can you say that about? People traveling 30, 40 miles north of Paris specifically to stand at his yeah. grave and to pay homage to the effect he's had on their lives. And, Tourists come and they bring notes, sort of almost uh, mementos. Artists will bring paintbrushes and things uh, and to lay on his grave as a kind of personal gesture. Um. Now, one of the things that you guys have done is it's often thought that Vincent commit, committed suicide, and he talked a lot about committing suicide. But one of the things that I think you make very clear in your characterization of uh, Vincent, and it's great that he, we think of him as a character and we're involved with him, just like we would be a character in a Zola novel or King Lear in Shakespeare's play, which is one of his favorite plays, yeah. um, is that he thought about it and he considered it, but he also considered it dishonorable right. and like it was the easy way out. Right. Well, what, we, we obviously, the thing that's gotten the most international attention, including a half an hour on national Chinese television, is this issue of how he died. And one of the first waves of realization on our part was that as you get to know him personally and get to know him as a human being, uh, it, it became increasingly difficult to imagine 
that he would take his own life. And in fact, a very major Van Gogh scholar uh, we interacted with about this subject, and he too said, I'd never, just never believed that this man would be capable of killing himself. I mean, he part of that was your point, and that is that he had railed against suicide his whole life. He had said it was the act of a coward. He quoted VA saying this is something that you he had made Theo promise he would never do it. Um, and, uh, and when he did, when he talked about artists committing suicide, it was always uh, by drowning. He thought that was the only artistic way to drown, I mean, to kill, to kill oneself. And uh, so there was all that uh, uh, going against the idea that he would commit suicide. And then there was, when we got to that part of the book, there was, there was this, the existing story, the sort of mythology uh, that he had walked into a wheat field one day carrying his paints and all this sort of stuff and shot himself with a pistol. <clears throat> that story, when closely examined, just fell apart. It just had no, it didn't make sense. It had internal contradictions. Um, and so if you look closely at it and at its sourcing, uh, it had you know, no four first-hand witnesses to support it. It was all just basically made up afterwards because it sounded nice. It sounded right. It fit into the mythology of the, of the tormented uh, genius artist who was unrecognized in his own time. And, decided and it made to a good scene life. in the movie Less for Life. It was um, a, it's right. a dramatic way. Or a good end to Irving Stone's book. Right. Um, but even earlier than that, <clears throat> when it was first, it was first invented by uh, Emile Bernard, a, a, a fellow painter of Vincent's, because it sort of fit into his the mythology he was trying to create about the artist and the, how the artist suffers as an outsider and, and is alienated from his society and therefore it seemed like the obvious way for Vincent to go. And, but anyway, there was just, there, the, the story that, was, that came down to us was just full of holes and didn't, would never have passed well, Specifically, uh, some of the major holes are, are the, the, the medical evidence of the wound. The mm -hmm. fact that the doctors who examined him um, noticed first that he, sh he was shot in the stomach, but we did the research later to yeah. find out that fewer than 2% of the people who kill themselves with a, by gunshot do it in the stomach. It's just not, uh, or abdomen. So that was money, one of the many ways in which the forensics were inconsistent with suicide. And, and the, the doctor's report was that the gun was too far out and from a weird angle. Uh, th that medical report alone led one of the scholars of the Van Gogh Museum to, to posit back about seven years ago that Vincent couldn't have killed himself because of the doctor's report. He just couldn't imagine who else could have done it. You know, who else would shoot Vincent Van Gogh? Um, but there were other problems. One of them was who would give him a gun? They could never found the gun, but they also couldn't explain how he got a hold of a gun. They were rare in rural France, and uh, everybody in Auvergne knew that he had just come out of an insane asylum. Why would they give him a gun? And it was supposedly in order to scare off crows. Well, there were no crows in uh, Auvergne in July. Vincent was a bird lover from childhood. He collected their, their eggs in their nests. Right, and He right. had no reason to want to scare off crows. It fit the story that the last painting was Crows in the Wheat Field, which is this grand meditation on death. But A, artists don't need to see a bird to put a bird in a painting. I mean, they do have imaginations <laughs> by definition. And second, that painting turns out to have been painted about July 10th, more than two weeks before the death, and in between were a whole lot of very happy paintings. This was not, by any means, the, the, the period of his life um, that was the most miserable. There were many worse periods of his life. Then, how did he climb with this terrible wound from the wheat fields down a mile? 
down a deep escarpment to the end with this um, incredibly painful injury in his, uh, in his abdomen. That didn't make sense. And, uh, but, but there were other details that began to emerge. Uh, one of them was uh, an, an interview given by... Well, um, I'm, I'm remember, let me say, those are the, the, initially there was skepticism about the story that we inherited, which as Steve was just talking about, and the inconsistencies within it. <clears throat> the third element was we found some traces of an alternative version of how he could have died that had better circumstantial evidence behind them, explained the holes in the existing, in the inherited version, in the canonical version. And that's what, uh, that's where uh, Steve was talking about that. Yes. Well, the, the, one of the key elements is an interview that was given uh, after Lust for Life uh, appeared by a man named René Secretin, who was a wealthy banker and businessman and a champion marksman of all things, um, in which he gives this incredibly confessional interview. He doesn't confess to actually pulling the trigger. Uh, there is no statute of limitations on murder and it's pretty unlikely that he, would, that he would have admitted to pulling the trigger, but he does admit that it was his gun. And that's what we finally find out in the 1950s where the gun, you know, how, where the gun came from. It was his gun and he's, he gets very, the only place where he's inconsistent in well, the wait interview. Wait, you missed the key point, which is that he admits to having, when he was a 16-year-old in Auvergne, when Vincent was there, he convinced to having taunted Vincent, having gotten him drunk in order to tease him, and uh, <clears throat> having sort of um, uh, uh, put his girlfriends uh, on Vincent to try to tease him for his lack of sexual uh, fulfillment or, or opportunity, and uh, basically made his life hell. And this was, not only is it was this credible because he was saying it against his own interests in 1956 or whatever, but also this was very typical of how the kind of treatment Vincent encountered in other places he lived. Mm -hmm. He typically had tormentors and they were typically teenagers in town who thought he was this crazy Dutchman who spoke this heavily accented French and did weird things and acted in a, in a weird way and didn't have any roots and didn't have any apparent means of support and did these crazy paintings. So he had always, in all of his iterations, he had attracted uh, tormentors like René Secretin, a 60-year-old with a, with a pistol that was known to malfunction. So, so in addition to having doubts about the original theory, uh, and doubts, in addition to feeling that suicide was inconsistent with Vincent as a person, now there appears a third party, a new person on the scene, who was in a, had the opportunity, had the motive to, to get into a tussle with Vincent in which the gun went off. And had and, the weapon. And Vincent was accidentally shot and produced the weapon that had been missing from the day of the accident. The weapon disappeared, the paintings disappeared, everything that Vincent took with him to the field had all disappeared. So basically this is, in our opinion, it is a more convincing circumstantial explanation of how Vincent ended up with a fatal wound, a gunshot wound, than the one that we've inherited. But the, the, the sort of most important detail and the one that sort of uh, forced us into the position where we decided we simply had to make this information available. We put it mostly in an appendix so mm -hmm. that readers can figure this out for themselves. But uh, in, uh, in the 1930s, John Rewald, pretty arguably the greatest historian of, art, of Impressionism, 
and post-impressionism had lived in Paris. Uh, he was going to school at the Sorbonne, and he would go, take some trips up to Auvers and talk to the villagers. Well, it was only 40 years after Vincent died, so there were plenty of people around who had been there and were at least teenagers, if not adults, when this uh, situation uh, took place, when the death took place. And the rumors that he heard in Auvers in the 1930s were that Vincent had not committed suicide, that he'd been shot accidentally by a couple of boys, and that he uh, decided to take the blame because it was an accident and he didn't want to ruin their lives. And uh, uh, you take that in, into consideration along with the evidence around René Secretin and the implausibility of the sort of standard understanding of how he died, and it all comes together in a, in a theory that you can't prove, but at least seems far more plausible than, than, the, than the original one. And what's interesting is that in terms of reading your book and the reading experience, it's more consistent with the character right. of Vincent van right. Gogh right. as you guys have created it. Now I want to touch on one last final point very briefly, very quickly, which is there's something, and I think that's at the center of the book and that's at the center of the appeal of his art. Okay. When, when he said, this is it, or is it that he had this perception of the un unity between the appeal of religious thought and the appeal of art. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really the center of the appeal of his art. And I'd like you each to talk a little, just a little bit about that. Well, the phrase you're referring to is dat is het, is the phrase he used, and Dutch phrase. And he, early in his career, actually before he began his career as an artist, he identified this sort of divine essence to life that could be perceived through various images. Uh, they could be images in real life. They could be things he's, he glimpsed in a street corner. Uh, they could be uh, images, uh, a VA image. They could be um, a passage in a book. So they were those, uh, he tied all those together in this term, which meant uh, uh, a kind of a religion, a religion of, uh, of inspiration, of aspiration, of a feeling of, of that moment when you feel tied into immortality and, uh, and the sublime transports you to uh, a place of perception and calmness and comfort that is above everyday life. And, and when, when he wanted to be a preacher before he be, wanted to be a painter, that was the aspect of religion that interested him. It wasn't, uh, although he knew the Bible well and translated it into four different languages and could quote from it, uh, the passage that was most important to him was St. Paul to the Corinthians, the, the few words, sorrowful but always rejoicing. Um, he, he, it was enormously comfort, comforting to him personally that you could be miserable, but religion or something, later art, could, could bring you, extract you from this deep well of sorrow and give you an uplifting, even jubilant experience. And he wanted to console people with religion that way, and when that didn't work out, he very consciously, and he talks about his letters, we're not just perceiving this, he wanted to console as many people as possible uh, to make the unhappy happy through, through these paintings in the, in the same way that religion can take people who are sad and, uh, and give them joy. So he transferred that search 
for the it, for the, the, the uh, wormhole, if you will, in perception that allowed you to go from the everyday to the sublime, from the mortal to the immortal. He continued that search in his art. And he found it, as, and, you found and, it in, and you found it in his life. And I thank you very much for doing so. I've been speaking with Stephen Nifey and Gregory Whitesmith. Their new book is Van Gogh, The Life. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Rick, thank, thank you, you so you very, very much. much. We yes. can't thank you enough. Our pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.